In Europe, more than 10,000 medical professionals have now been infected with coronavirus while treating patients. The Chinese whistleblower doctor who told the world about the coronavirus in Wuhan has died. NHS medics are dying and Dr. Alpha Sadu is one. The Nigerian-born retired medical director spent his whole career in the NHS. Jean-Jacques Azafan Mourazi is the first doctor in France who had been on the front line of caring for coronavirus patients, now dead after contracting the disease. An emergency room doctor in New Jersey has become the first doctor to die in the United States from coronavirus. Well, the pressure is certainly on our healthcare system and our medical professionals on the front line. Today in Australia, there's concern the already stretched public system will quickly reach capacity. 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. In a famous speech during the Second World War, Winston Churchill once said, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. I can't help but feel that there are some great parallels between our times. Once again, our society faces something of an existential threat, and once again we, we turn to a small, highly skilled collective to defend us. I've always felt like healthcare workers have a superpower, the power to heal and protect us. It's not a superpower they were born with, but it's one they attain through years of studying and experience. But those superpowers, more than anything else right now, they are the thin red line that protects us from a challenge the size of which our generation has never known. So what is actually going on in our health system right now? Unlike Europe and the USA, where news crews are showing us firsthand the state of affairs, in Australia we're, to a large degree, kind of left in the dark. Unless you're there. And one of those people that are there is one of these people with superpowers. Dr Simon Gibbs is a blood cancer specialist who leads the myeloma service at Eastern Health in Melbourne. He graciously agreed to speak to me to provide a window into where the Australian healthcare system is at in dealing with COVID-19. Hi Simon, first of all, thank you very much for giving up your Good Friday to speak to us. That's a pleasure, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Now, you've worked in hospitals in the United Kingdom and in the USA. We're seeing in the news what's happening in those hospitals right now. That doesn't seem to be what's happening in the hospitals here. Why is that? Well, I think we've been quite lucky for the most part. Um, we haven't had the uh, influx of numbers of COVID-19 positive patients who have become really sick that um, Italy or the US or the UK have been experiencing. Um, so there seems to be a little bit of calm before the storm, or at least that's what we are anticipating. Um, we've certainly had some uh, individual cases and clusters in various hospitals, but we haven't had the scenario that we've seen in Italy where hospitals have been overrun. Um, and we've started to see that, unfortunately, in the uh, in the USA, in particular in New York, and, and also to some extent in London, they've been very busy. So we haven't had the um, fury of, uh, patients coming in, uh, and I think we've been lucky for the most part with that. I think swift action by hospitals and government agencies have meant that we've managed to avoid the worst of the crisis. Um, I mean, there's been reports in the media, obviously, but I think mostly the 
patients that we've seen have been returned travellers uh, and their contacts, and of course, those on the Ruby Princess. And so community spread and spread to healthcare workers has so far been limited, fortunately, which has not been the case overseas. Uh, what we have been doing in the hospitals is preparing. So we've seen what's, we've heard the stories of what's happening in China. We've uh, benefited from the experience of Singapore and South Korea, where they haven't had the huge numbers that China had. And then I think the thing that really worried people was when we saw colleagues uh, and friends in Italy and what they've had to go through. That was a big wake up call that this uh, was more than the flu. Um, and so all hospitals have been preparing disaster plans uh, with uh, meetings about how can we double or triple or quadruple our intensive care bed capacity? Uh, how do we ensure we have enough ventilators? Uh, making sure we've stocked up on essential medications, remembering that you need sedatives and you, you need painkillers to have someone on a ventilator. And we're starting to, to see in the US not only a shortage of ventilators, but a, short, a shortage of these essential medications. Um, the other thing that we've been doing is just checking what the skill set is of all the staff. So we know that if we're tripling an intensive care department, then we need triple the amount of staff. Um, and that's assuming that none of your staff get sick, um, that none of your staff have to self-isolate because, because of exposure, et cetera. Um, and so we're looking at those uh, staff members who have had intensive care or emergency experience because we may need to deploy them uh, to assist uh, if, if the pandemic really hits our hospitals. The other thing that we're doing in the hospitals is repurposing wards. So if we feel that some wards would be uh, appropriate to house non-intensive care COVID positive patients, um, then we need to be able to identify those, those um, hospitals. So I know having spoken to a colleague at the Royal Free Hospital recently, she said that uh, most of the presentations into the hospital in London there uh, are COVID positive patients. And uh, in the UK alone yesterday, 900 patients died of COVID-19, um, whereas Australia, we had two patients. So our population is a third of the UK, but our COVID numbers way down and so with all of this what we're doing in the hospitals is preparing for an Italian or a New York or a, a London situation. It sounds like to a large degree that Australia's just had a bit more time than some of these European nations to prepare for this pandemic yeah. and we seem to have really made good use of that time. I think we've been lucky in that sense in that we ha I think we have been looking outside we have been uh, really looking outwards about what the experience is elsewhere and I think that's Again, one of the lucky parts of being Australia is we often we are used to looking at other countries such as the US and Europe about what their experience has been and bringing new techniques or new drugs or new research to Australia. So we're always looking uh, abroad. And I think that when we saw what was starting to happen in China and then especially in Italy, I think that's when we said, right, we've got to prepare because the thing that struck us with the Italian situation was that this took hold very quickly and overwhelmed, you know, a very, very uh, well organised and relatively wealthy part of Europe very, very quickly. So we certainly could have um, had an Italian situation here and we've been making use of the time. 
It's a really interesting point. You sort of indicate that Australia's you know traditional proclivity to sort of look at other nations and, and to learn from them has perhaps assisted us here. Do you think the United States, because of its tendency of sort of American exceptionalism, its sort of resistance to try and learn from other nations and, and what they're doing, do you think that's really hindered them in their experience? Uh, that's a, a, an interesting point. And uh, I think that one that I think a lot of people think of. I think that um, the British exceptionalism as well of initially coming out and say, talking about herd mentality when we didn't have a good treatment or a good vaccine was a um, perhaps not the best in retrospect. So I think that we didn't sort of have that attitude or uh, the sort of thought of, oh, we've only got a few patients it's going to be fine, nothing to see here, which was some of the early discussions coming out of the US. So I think that we took the situation seriously and uh, I, I give credit to our political leaders and our, uh, the leaders in our, our health departments for that. And I think also part of that is because we are quite connected to China and to um, Southeast Asia. And so knowing the risk of spread from the Chinese situation to into Australia meant that we acted quite quickly, perhaps more quickly than some of those other countries. We also appear to be at least one of the best testers for COVID-19. I think that's actually, you brought up testing, which I think is a, a, a really interesting point. And again, I think that we've been very fortunate that uh, Australia has been on the front foot with testing. So I think that that's a, a credit in that we've tested rapidly with healthcare workers, with uh, people who were potentially exposed, uh, were sent home, people with any symptoms um, in the hospitals were sent home very early. I was swabbed twice and sent home because I had a sniffle and a cough. And I think that uh, while that may have been seen by some to be an overreaction, I think that it's come to pass to be a very good strategy. And so I think we've been lucky in that sense. That's quite actually encouraging to hear, especially as we hear news reports from America about frontline healthcare workers simply unable to be tested. You discussed sort of uh, the situation in Italy and Spain and how the Australian health system has sort of had that time to learn from that and prepare. How, and, and right now we aren't where Italy and Spain is. How much of a ceiling do we have before we get to that stage? Is it something where we have a lot of wiggle room or is it a situation we could very easily get to very quickly? I think we could be there very quickly. Uh, I think it wouldn't take much at all for things to unravel here. We just have to look at the experience with the Ruby Princess. I think a, re a relaxation of the shutdowns could mean that we could have a second wave very quickly, which could be far, far worse than what we've experienced already and soon turn us into an, an Italy situation. You know, I read uh, an experience recently in the US where 50 people attended a funeral of a COVID-19 victim. After that funeral, 22 of the people who were there tested positive. Wow. Seven ended up in hospital and two people died. Yeah. So it really is so important, I think, that we continue to socially isolate until that curve is really flat, flat, flat. Um, and, you know, we have to remember that if we do have a second wave, we still don't have any definite successful treatments and we're still probably a year off to having a reliable vaccine. So there's still a lot that we need to do. We are learning about the virus. We're learning about the treatments every day. 
which is great, but I still think that there is a huge amount for us to learn and we don't know the best way of treating patients with COVID-19. So yes, we could easily be in the same situation. It'd only take a week or two and we could be just like that. And remember that it was only three weeks ago that our numbers were you know, doubling every two to three days. Um, and again, it wouldn't take, wouldn't take very much. It's also amazing to think that it was only two or three weeks ago that we were all still in pubs and watching sports in crowded stadiums. You mentioned there in regards to how we treat the virus. What is the standard treatment now for an Australian that enters a hospital with COVID-19? It's mainly supportive care. So if patients are bad enough that they need to come into hospital, um, we need to make sure, is it do they have COVID-19? So we need to test them. We need to isolate them and we need to uh, make sure that they have uh, enough oxygen. So often a lot of patients will be put on oxygen if their oxygen levels are quite low. So Boris Johnson, uh, the British Prime Minister recently, as you would know, was admitted to intensive care, fortunately was not ventilated, but did need uh, several days of very high flow oxygen. So that's the basic sort of uh, support that we would give. We'd make sure that we optimise all their other medical conditions while they're there. So making sure that there isn't a, a secondary pneumonia on top of the coronavirus. So most patients would probably start on some general antibiotics to cover for that possibility. Uh, what is really starting to be rolled out in Australia, which I think is great, and in many other parts of the world, including the UK and the US, are clinical trials looking at what is the best treatment. So we've heard President Trump uh, speak in glowing terms about uh, hydroxychloroquine, mm -hmm. uh, which is an old anti-malarial drug. We also use it for some autoimmune conditions. That drug is not without risk. Um, it does have some pretty severe side effects the, in, in some people. So President Trump asked, you know, what have I got to lose taking this? And we would say, well, uh, a normal uh, cardiac rhythm would be one thing you might lose. So, <laughs> oh, there's that, uh, yeah. Because, you know, it, it, it is a, a well-known side effect of hydroxychloroquine that it can put you into an irregular heart rhythm. We're, we're doing a lot of trials looking at um, antiviral medication, so looking at uh, treatments for other viruses, such as for HIV and Ebola, seeing whether that has any activity with COVID-19. Uh, we have learnt that patients who do need to be ventilated, typically we would have, if someone is ventilated, that is that we have a machine that's taking over a person's breathing because they can't get enough oxygen into their lungs. Normally that, that patient would be lying flat on their back with a tube down their throat, taking over their breathing. One of the things that's been found is that if you actually turn the patient over for several hours, that's called proning. If we prone the patient, we get a better oxygenation level. And um, one of the interesting things, again, at the Royal Free in London, they have specialised proning teams because you have to get several people to lift and reposition the patient with all the equipment in while there's a tube down a patient's throat. So again, we're learning every day about what can we use? And the way that we do this is by rigorously observing patients, by seeing what works, by doing it in a sensible, scientific manner through clinical trials. That's the only way we're actually going to learn. For anyone who has to come in with coronavirus, we would uh, at this stage be looking at putting them on a clinical trial to see what's actually going to work. And that'll be good for the entire community that way. We're learning 
every day that certain groups are more susceptible than others. So we, I think we're, when you say, what are we doing to treat someone? We're also learning how best to identify those most at risk. So the other thing that we're doing, I'm a blood cancer specialist. I deal with myeloma and leukemia. And one of the things that we're doing now is, is really looking at patients and saying, if you're in a very high risk group, and you're currently on some form of chemotherapy or some treatments that may weaken your immune system, can we postpone treatment? Can we decrease the intensity of the treatment in order to make you less susceptible to a severe form of COVID-19? Now, that's obviously a very complex discussion that you have to have with the patient using as much evidence as you can. But that is some of the things that we're doing is to making sure that we're actually protecting the most vulnerable patients. Uh, we know that, unfortunately, the mortality rate, the death rate is higher in the elderly, um, that men are twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as women. Wow, um, And that's come out now in several groups. So um, man flu is a real thing. Um, I've told, told them for years <laughs> it's a real thing. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, Patients with diabetes or high blood pressure, we, we need to particularly um, look at those uh, patients very carefully, make sure that they have adequate levels of support. Um, and so the other thing that we're doing when we're treating someone with coronavirus is, is we're treating them with keep gloves very, very cautiously to protect the healthcare workers and all the other workers that are involved in the hospital while making sure that we're trying to uh, provide the, the optimum treatment to those, to those patients. Well, whatever we are doing appears to have some substance to it because without getting too far ahead of ourselves, we appear to have one of the lowest death rates for COVID-19 in the world. A lot of the statistics that we're seeing out there, a lot of the statistics that I share speaks about um, patients that are going to hospital because of COVID-19, then there's the additional demographic of those that are in ICU, and then there's those that are on ventilators. I'm hoping that you could possibly shed a bit of light about what the difference is uh, between those three stages of treatment. I think an important point to recognise is that most people will not require hospitalisation if they get COVID-19. The vast majority of people will have either no symptoms or they'll have minor or moderate symptoms that they can look after at home. The, the typical symptoms of coronavirus uh, are things such as fever, high temperatures, sweats and chills. I would always be worried if your temperature was above 38, if you've got a thermometer at home. And then things such as a dry cough, so that you're not actually producing a lot of phlegm. Um, and then things like quite bad fatigue, tiredness and a sore throat. Shortness of breath is the other thing that we really worry about. So if you're so breathless that you can't speak in full sentences, that would be an indication to go to hospital. And certainly the if you've, if you've got a very high fever with those sorts of things, it, it is worthwhile maybe speaking with the doctor or the hospital about uh, that you possibly are at risk and certainly call before you go. We don't want a lot of people running onto the hospitals um, for that. And there's the the um, healthdirect.gov.au website's quite good with stuff like that. So the question is, once you get to hospital, 
you know, there is, uh, there's the, the general ward. So you would probably be admitted to a, um, what we call a COVID ward um, if you're uh, suspected to have COVID-19 or confirmed. Um, so that is run typically by respiratory and infectious diseases doctors um, or general medicine doctors. And uh, they would be monitoring you very carefully in uh, single rooms, you know, with all the kit, the protective equipment that uh, the doctors and the nurses and and the other supportive care staff uh, have to have to uh, wear, uh, checking your oxygen levels and uh, giving you basic support. When we go into intensive care, is when patients, even with like a, a mask on, blowing oxygen into their lungs, that we're just not getting enough oxygen in to meet the, the, the requirements that the body needs. So you're still short of breath, you're still struggling for breath. That would be of major concern and we would put you into intensive care. And what that means is that you've got more individualised nursing. So you've got a nurse usually attached one-to-one or one-to-two um, rather than one-in-five um, on the ward, so to speak, and just making sure that we can deliver oxygen more efficiently. So there are other ways that we can give oxygen. We can give a, a larger amount of oxygen to patients whose oxygen levels are, are really low because the coronavirus is in their lungs. And ventilation is, even with those, uh, all the... Uh, equipment that we have in order to give you as much oxygen as possible that we still can't meet your requirements or in fact you're getting too tired so if you're been struggling to breathe for 48 hours there is the risk that you will actually get so tired that you'll stop breathing and at that point when it looks like we either can't get enough oxygen in or you're going to actually stop breathing because you're just so tired then what we'll actually do is we'll take over your breathing. And what that is, is that we uh, put you into a coma with some medications. Um, so we give uh, uh, relaxants so that you will actually go into a sleep, like going for an operation. And then we can uh, quickly put a uh, tube down into your throat um, that's attached to a machine and we can blow oxygen into your lungs to make sure that your body has enough oxygen to meet um, its requirements, that all the tissues are supplied with the oxygen that they need. Well, that's actually a really valuable insight. Thank you so much for that. Now, this long weekend, I and, and probably a lot of the listeners of this podcast are heeding the advice of the Prime Minister and the Chief Medical Officer, and we're, we're spending our long weekend at home. Good. Why are we doing this? What's the importance? We're hearing about flattening the curve. Yep. And, and what is the product of this? What, 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 is, what are we hoping to gain as a country from limiting our public interactions? So unlike the flu, this uh, COVID-19 seems to be very contagious. So we know that I think on average flu, and I, I don't have the figures directly to hand, but I think if you get the flu, you're probably going to infect one or two other people. With COVID-19, it's at least three, possibly up to 10 people with this uh, virus. So the more that you can not touch things, the more that you can not interact with people means that there's more likelihood that we won't spread this. So we know that with COVID-19, most of us will 
in the end will probably be infected by this. Unfortunately, this is a pandemic. That means it's it's going to be everywhere eventually. Now, we've got two ways of dealing with this, that we have a very um, relaxed approach uh, that p- people can go out and about and a large proportion of the population will get infected very quickly. What that means is that we overrun the healthcare system. That means that if you need an intensive care bed, we may not have one for you. If you need a ventilator, we might not have one for you. It's because there's so many cases, and we've seen that in Italy, we're seeing that in New York, that they're running out of intensive care beds and that they're running out of ventilators. So the idea of flattening the curve is to slow the rate of infections so that the healthcare system can keep up. So if there's a trickle of infections that occur, then we can deal with that. We're going to have enough intensive care beds and we're going to have enough ventilators. And that's what's happening now in Australia. So that's terrific that we've managed to flatten that curve. And that's really been because we've stopped movement of people, we've stopped interactions of people. And by doing that, we've actually stopped the spread. We've stopped how contact, we've stopped this very contagious virus being spread from person to person. And so I applaud you and everyone else for taking notice of uh, Brendan Murphy and uh, Scott Morrison and uh, staying home. That's the best thing that everyone can do. Well, it really is the least we can do compared to what a lot of Australian healthcare workers are facing on a daily basis, which, which probably brings me to my next point. I sort of turned my mind to when I first remember hearing about coronavirus and seeing what was happening in Wuhan and then seeing what was happening in, in northern Italy and in Spain. And I think since that period, a lot of Australians have felt this sort of anxiety that oh, this is coming, it's going to happen to us. And for most Australians, it's been a situation where we're being asked to sort of cop the economic impacts, uh, that disruption to our lives and being forced to be told to stay home and, and ride this out. However, for Australian healthcare workers, I can only imagine it's been a vastly different type of anxiety because over the past few months, it must have been this sensation of, of impending calamity that was going to impact your lives on a daily basis. What has that been like for healthcare workers, knowing that at any point we could be another Italy or another Spain? I think everyone's had various levels of anxiety, and I think that that's, that's normal. I think as healthcare workers, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or uh, other support supportive care staff, I, I think we've got quite used to being knowledgeable, trying to help and being in control. And I think that this pandemic presents us with a situation we don't face very often, then that is that we're really not in control, that we really don't know that much and uh, we feel a bit helpless. And that's unsettling for a healthcare worker. We don't like that. On top of that, you know, I think some of our nurses are incredibly brave because they're the ones that, you know, for COVID-19 positive patients, they have to interact with and spend a lot of time with. And so I think for, for many of, of us, but in particular, I think some of the frontline nursing staff, it's the worry that you could get coronavirus yourself, that you could pass it on to your loved ones, So I think that there's an anxiety there as well. So everyone deals with this differently. I think that knowledge and planning does calm you down a bit. So if you actually know, okay, this may happen, that this is what we've planned that we're going to do, that we have plans now for if we lose 50% of our staff from them being seconded to 
uh, various departments or getting sick or being on self-isolation, knowing what we're going to do in that situation, having a bit of an idea of what's happened in Spain and Italy and, and saying, okay, well, we can do this. We've, we've identified which, uh, which members of staff would be helpful in this situation, which members of staff would do that. That's been helpful. And I think also seeing that that preparation and um, looking after each other has been has been helpful. So we've we've changed the way that we we've operated in that we we don't meet face to face. So that self isolation that you mentioned before, Carrick, we've we've been practicing too, and uh, we've been having uh, lots of Zoom meetings or Microsoft Team meetings, and in terms of our consultations with patients, more than 90% now are done over the telephone. And this is a great way, or FaceTime, it's a great way of ensuring that the patients are still speaking with their doctors and while they're protecting themselves. They don't need to travel on public transport. They don't need to come into hospital or medical rooms for appointments. But that's also good for our anxiety as well. And and that for you know our, our staff, like our secretarial support, cleaners, et cetera, they're also worried as well. So some of us also need to be sort of strong for looking after our not only our patients, but also the other workers that are all part of part of the hospital. It's been an anxious time, but I, I've been quite heartened by the fact that I think that the whole healthcare community has really tried to work together to get the best possible outcome and be as prepared as possible for something that's very difficult to prepare for. It's funny, I can't help but feel that that sort of camaraderie that must be sort of being generated within the healthcare system right now must be similar to what soldiers experience at war, just because they have that general sense that the rest of the public don't understand what they've been through. So they generally lean on each other. Because I feel like the general Australian public right now, whilst we sympathise and we have a great deal of gratitude with what you're doing, we really can't relate. So is there that similar sort of camaraderie growing? It's an interesting analogy. It sort of feels a little bit like you're in the trenches you know, you've got your, your your new uniform, you've got your gun with your bayonet, and you're just waiting for the you know siren or the whistle to sound to jump onto the battlefield. It does feel a little bit like that. So there's a little bit of anxiety and tension, and everyone loses it from time to time. It's like you know, so and so might go off for ten minutes about something pretty minor, and and then you realise, oh, they're just a bit stressed, and ten minutes later they're back to inverted commas normal. You know, I, I've been saying to people we need to not count to 10, we need to count to 25 because I think tempers are a little bit short and everyone's a little bit anxious. But I think seeing that curve flatten and seeing um, people actually rallying by staying at home, by doing the right thing, I think that that's actually helped some of that anxiety and, and tension. I feel like counting to 25 instead of 10 is fantastic general advice for anyone in a relationship trying to survive <laughs> lockdown. Uh, we are seeing in a lot of these places that have been more heavily impacted what appears to be a significantly higher death rate for healthcare workers. Um, I think I've just seen yesterday a hundred doctors have so far died in in Italy. Not to be too morbid about it, but is there any theories as to why doctors and, and healthcare workers in general appear to be uh, more at risk from this disease? There are some thoughts that there might be a dose effect. So if you if you get a large dose of someone coughing at you or you you have repeated exposure to a pathogen such as COVID-19, then maybe you'll get a worse dose, you'll get a worse uh, disease load or outcome. 
So I think that repeated exposure possibly might be one of the factors. It may also be that um, uh, we are testing healthcare workers more. So we know that if you're testing a, a large proportion of healthcare workers, if they have symptoms, then you'll say, well, a large proportion of healthcare workers, you know, are, are getting uh, uh, COVID-19 compared to the average population. I, I'm not sure that we're seeing a larger amount of proportionally healthcare workers dying from this. But it is obvious that if you're more exposed to a virus, you're more likely to catch it. So I think it's that the important thing with healthcare workers is we all have to look after each other and we all have to make sure that we're wearing the right equipment and we've all got a responsibility ourselves for making sure that we're washing our hands and all that. But I think we do need to uh, be mindful that there possibly is a dose effect and that possibly healthcare workers right in the front line may be more at risk just because they've got more exposure. If you were able to deliver one message to every Australian right now about coronavirus, and I can't promise you you'll be able to deliver that message to every Australian, but you can deliver it to anyone who listens to this podcast, what would that message be? One message. Oh, I've got plenty of messages, but um, the, the, I guess the, the one uh, message would be just listen to what the chief medical officer is is saying, you know, we're everyone's trying their best, and uh, the we're learning on a day to day basis. But stay at home. Uh, if you're being told to stay at home, just do it. I mentioned that that uh, example of the funeral with 50 people, um, and 22 people then caught COVID-19 by going to the funeral, and two of them died. You know, it's not worth the risk. You know, we've we've got pretty clear guidelines now about what you should and shouldn't do. So just do the right thing because when you don't do that and if you get COVID, uh, you may be giving it to the old lady that you live next door to or you might give it to a healthcare worker. And uh, so it's it's really important that we try and flatten that curve, stop the spread um, and ensure that we can deal with this as sensibly as we possibly can. I think that's some great advice. Uh, look, Simon, thank you so much for giving up some of your valuable time in between your hospital shifts to, to speak to me today. And look, just on behalf of my listeners and myself, I just want to express that we, we don't just have a great deal of gratitude for what you, you're all doing. We also have a great deal of respect. Um, this is a war that we're fighting. And unfortunately, it's only healthcare workers that can be on the front line. It's not something that we can step in to, to help with. We really have to sit back and we're sort of sitting back in, in awe at the moment of the great efforts that's, that the healthcare workers are putting in. So th from the bottom of our heart, thank you so much for everything you're doing right now. Uh, that's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on and um, wash your hands.